Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell on High Water, my podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. We have got a very special episode for you today in which I'm going to introduce you to the co-hosts of the News Items podcast, a new member of the Recount family of pods. News Items is our first daily title. A new installment drops every Monday through Thursday at 5.30 p.m. And then at the same time on Friday, there's an extended cut of one of the interviews from the show earlier in the week. Now, I know what you're thinking. Thanks for all that programming info, J.H. And I get a sense that the News Items podcast is probably about, like, you know, news. But what kind of news precisely and what makes it different from all the other news-related podcasts out there? Those are good questions, and I will answer them momentarily. But first, let's meet the co-hosts of the News Items podcast, starting with its presiding genius, the guy who founded and runs the News Items newsletter on which the News Items podcast is based. And that would be John Ellis. The state of the news is uh, it's never been better and it has rarely been worse. The other co-host of the podcast is a sharp-eyed, sharp-tongued, super-smart journalist with a particular expertise in the world of finance, but whose insights range widely across all the fields that the News Items podcast covers. That would be Rebecca Darst. The state of our union is getting better. I believe it. I think we're at, a, we're at an inflection point in a lot of areas in our country, and I think that people who've been overlooked will be overlooked no more. The story of how the News Items podcast came about is worth telling because it will give you a sense of why you absolutely definitely need to become a subscriber immediately, if not sooner, in my humble opinion, at least. Two years ago or so, my pal Mike Barnacle told me about a new newsletter that he'd become addicted to, a newsletter with the strikingly understated and unfussy title, News Items. The title, of course, also raised a bunch of questions, such as, what the fuck is this newsletter about? So I asked Barnacle exactly that. Mike stammered and yammered and couldn't quite explain it. Just check it out. I think you'll like it. It's really not like anything out there, he said. He also told me who its author was, John Ellis. Now, I was interested. Ellis is a brilliant polymath with an incredibly wide range of interests and curiosities who had worked in and around the news business for a long time and with whom I had a passing acquaintance. Anything that John Ellis was doing, and especially if it was a passion project, which Barnacle suggested that this was, was surely worth checking out. So I did. And Mike was right. News Items was unlike any newsletter I had ever read. Compelling, concise, far-sighted, wildly ahead of the curve. Every day I read things in News Items, important things, that I would never have come across without it. And that is where things get really interesting, because News Items was organized around stories that fell into three big baskets— and occasionally a fourth. Number one, the world in disarray. Number two, the financialization of everything. Number three, advances in science and technology. And number four, electoral politics in the U.S. and around the world. Now, if you total up all the news coverage out there in the world, I would say that roughly 90% of it is stuff that doesn't fall into any of the news items' big three baskets, which is to say 90% of news coverage is fluff. But it's that 10% that really matters, not just because they are the stories that are really and truly impacting the world today, but because they involve the seismic tectonic plate shifting developments that are going to most fundamentally shape our future. And it is those stories that News Items is devoted to exclusively and obsessively. 
So a few months after my conversation with Barnacle and after I signed up for the newsletter, we're talking about the fall of 2019 now, John Ellis and I had breakfast and he told me the story of how news items came about and where he saw it going. As it happened, the recount had been up and running for about six months at that point, and we were hatching a plan to get into podcasting. I told Ellis I thought that news items would make a fantastic pod and that we should talk about it some more if he was interested in exploring the idea. Took us a while to get our shit together. Pandemics have a way of slowing down the development process, but eventually we did get our shit together. And in the process, we added Rebecca to the mix, a crucial addition given her smarts, her savvy, and her sparking presence on the mic. And, well, here we are. A podcast has been born. Like the newsletter it's based on, the News Items podcast is unlike any other podcast out there. In every episode, you will learn stuff you didn't know about the stories that actually matter in a big way to the present and future of planet Earth. Because John and Rebecca are voracious news consumers who scour sources across the spectrum, no matter how obscure that touch on the topics in their big three and sometimes four baskets, they are tapped into hyper-valuable streams of information that you are not tapped into and, in fact, don't even know exist. And that, in turn, gives them Owl eyes, the ability to see around corners and over the horizon, and then on the podcast to separate wheat from chaff and help you make sense of it all. Just one example before we get going here. News items was incredibly early, like months ahead of the mainstream media and paying attention to COVID-19 and firing off warning shots that it was coming to America and could be catastrophic. It's the first place I ever heard about it. And the News Items podcast is now one of the best and most accessible places to keep up with pandemic-related news, whether it's the apocalyptic situation in India or the truly mind-boggling triumphs on the vaccine front. So, having said all of that, probably too much, let's get, at long last, to John and Rebecca. But remember, while you're listening, I mean like while you're listening, not after you listen, like right now, toggle on over and subscribe to the News Items podcast, available on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you get your pods. I swear to God, I promise you, you will thank me later. And you will always remember the day you discovered the wonders of news items here on Hell and High Water. Guys, great to have you here on Hell and High Water. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you for having us. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having us on the show. Before we uh, dip into our conversation, I wanted to play a little bit of the podcast at the top here. So let's listen to a little clip uh, from the News Items podcast where John interviews Joanna Slater, the India Bureau Chief for the Washington Post, about the ongoing devastation that COVID is wreaking on India. India at the beginning was exporting or giving away some of the vaccines that it made, unlike other countries. Right. You know, its neighbors, particularly small countries, have benefited immensely. I know there's been a lot of coverage about Bhutan, mm -hmm. uh, India's neighbors, small Himalayan nation, you know, wedged between India and China, and about how it managed to vaccinate such a large proportion of its population. And it was only able to do that because India gave it vaccines right. and sold it vaccines, right? Right. Now, you can kind of applaud the generosity and the kind of diplomatic deftness involved in that. And then at the same time, I remember particularly a curious moment in March when I realized that India had exported about 60 million doses of vaccines, but only administered about 40 million inside the country. Wow. And that is something wrong. <laughs> wow. <laughs> There's something wrong there. You have infections rising and you have the second wave staring you in the face and you are still not moving fast enough to vaccinate your own people. And again, it speaks to a lack of preparation, a lack of urgency, a kind of complacency. And 
you know, I think we can, if you want, we can, you know, we can talk about then what actually happened, you know, in March in terms of the kind of choices, you know, that were made then. That's exactly what I want to talk about. And that is John Ellis talking with Joanna Slater from the Washington Post about COVID-19 in India. We will talk more about the situation in India in a moment, but man, the podcast is really great. I learned like so much in every episode and it seems like you guys are really having fun making it. Totally. So I have to say, I am like the, the part of the reason why there is a news items podcast is because of me, because I am like maybe the world's biggest news items newsletter fan, as John knows. And so we started talking about making this podcast uh, a while ago because I just don't know that there's a better newsletter out there, at least for my taste in the sense that I, there's a bunch of stuff I know a lot about. And I know a lot about general news. I know a lot about politics. I know a lot about a few things, but the way in which you s decided to, to group the stories that you were interested in, in the news items newsletter, I found always super compelling because I always learn stuff from this newsletter every single day. And, and I want to talk to you guys a little bit about what's going on in each of the four big buckets that you cover. John, go ahead, tell, just rattle off your four big buckets for me. The four big buckets, we stole the first one from Mr. Haas, Richard Haas, which is The World in Disarray, which was the title of one of his books. The second is The Financialization of Everything. That was a phrase that I first heard from Kevin Phillips, the legendary GOP political strategist in one of his books. The third is just advances in science and technology, which, as you know, are just proceeding at a breakneck speed. And finally, domestic and international politics. We devote, the newsletter devotes considerable attention to elections in major states, meaning countries, but also, you know, we're interested in the Finnish ruling coalition, which you'll never read about anywhere else, but it's popular with readers. Well, yeah, I mean, we never read about anywhere else is an important part of what the news items thing is, but it's also unapologetically highbrow. So I always, like I say, it's kind of always taking me, these are super important stories and not even stories, they're themes in some ways, rather than just in distinct topics. There's like some premises built into those buckets. Domestic international politics is the one without a premise, but financialization of everything is a thesis. World in disarray is a thesis, right? So John, I want to just start with, you know, I asked, we asked before we did the podcast, I said, hey, let's talk about each one of these areas. And then we'll also talk about John and Rebecca and their backgrounds. But when I asked you to kind of think about some of the big things happening in each one of these buckets, you came back with on world in disarray, you came back with just one and it was covid and its implications. And I, I just want to like, let's talk a little bit about where we are. You guys, I, I will say COVID is news items. The newsletter was the, really the first place that I first thought, oh, fuck, COVID could be a problem because you were on the COVID thing early. I mean, way earlier than mainstream media was. And obviously your newsletter is just, you know, pulling stuff from other media, but you were pulling stuff from pretty obscure sources and raising the red flag back in January of 2020, long before you know, everybody's like, oh, there's this thing in Wuhan. And you were like, no, 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 like pay attention to this. And I, you were the first person I thought reading the newsletter. I thought, yeah, this might be a real problem. So talk a little about where we are in that story. Well, we still don't know the origin uh, of the virus. And so the investigation into that is one story. There are four basic theories. I am increasingly convinced that it had to do with a lab leak at the Wuhan lab, the one that's probably most widely shared is animal to human. So that's the finding the origin is a big, big deal. And then what we're working with now, basically what's going on now is vaccines versus the variants. 
So obviously more jabs in the arms. We're now at more than a billion vaccination shots, and that's good. And the bad news is that the variants are popping up here, there, and everywhere. South Africa, the one that's really troubling now is India, obviously. The MIT Tech Review had a piece based on some statistical modeling done by the University of Washington that suggested that the cases per day were not 300,000 as being reported, but maybe as many as 5 million a day. If that's true, Jesus, then we are talking about a epic catastrophe. John, I want to come back to the question of origin and why it matters in a second, but Rebecca, just, you know, the thing that's been striking to me, you know, India right now, which I was just talking about, yep. it feels like a month ago, people were like, India could be a herd immunity soon. Mm-hmm. And then like that, yep. it's like, no, India is like the biggest COVID disaster ever. I'd be a hundred and right. what, 150 million cases or something there. And it seems like then the variants, it seems like it's completely out of control. So how did that happen <laughs> on the basis of what we know right now? How did it happen that India went from potential success story to total catastrophe seemingly overnight? Well, I think there were failures at the highest levels of government. I think that India is a case in point of the dangers of declaring premature victory and that you don't see the implications of that failure for many, many weeks or months. And then all of a sudden, then it explodes. Um, What's interesting about India is there was this sort of political failure at the highest levels of government, um, slowness to impose lockdown. Also, something that's interesting about India as a country is that it's a hotbed for vaccine production. And biotech, I mean, in our sort of globalized world, I mean, there's like tremendous concentration of vaccine and other biotech production facilities in India, but they're faced with a capacity failure to address needs in their own country. And I think that's a horrible tragedy. I mean, I think the implications of that are going to go are are going to be lasting. I mean, it's a terrible tragedy in India. Let me ask you this just to stay with you for a second, Rebecca, is this question, right? Mm. And this is a question that I believe I know the answer to, but I'm going to ask you anyway, because I do think there are a lot of people in America who hear about how bad things are in India and say, why the fuck do I care about about how bad things are in India? Things are getting better here. India is a long way from here. Why does it matter? Well, because they're human beings. I mean, there's that. There's that. You know, aside from aside aside from that, from the human tragedy. (laughs) I mean, as John said, this pandemic is a battle between vaccines and variants, and so the fact that India has been utterly unable to contain the virus, which is mutating rapidly. These more contagious variants are affecting younger people in more pernicious ways. I mean, we've got to watch ourselves in the U.S. and not declare premature victory because we are also susceptible to variants. I mean, additionally, from a geopolitical standpoint, a weakened India gives the U.S. one less effective ally in our attempt to, you know, create a lasting and feasible coalition against a counterweight to China, for example. I I mean, we don't want to see our friends suffering right. and flailing. And I think that's certainly a big factor to keep an eye on. So it's, I mean, it's above all else, a human tragedy, but it's its going to have ripple effects. I mean, people are saying in India, this is the biggest tragedy in the history of India since its independence. Right. Well, it's also, John, I think, you know, first of all, I mean, again, I, of course, human tragedy, got to pay attention to that. But there's also a couple things, right? One of them is lessons to be learned. Why do we care about India? We can learn some lessons. And a second thing is, you know, I had Vingupta on the podcast and Dr. Vingupta said, who has relatives in India and who practices in Seattle. And he was saying there was like a, there was a, an Indian variant that sprung up in Mumbai and was in Seattle within like 11 days. 
And part of the reason why we care about what happens in India, presumably, is that if it's a battle between vaccines and variants, you know, <laughs> in a world that's not just in disarray, but a world that's increasingly tiny and where nothing stays anywhere and everything can be in your backyard, we care about India because if it's a breeding ground for a dangerous new variants, they could be in our backyard pretty soon. And I think the count now is that the Indian variant that hasn't further mutated is in 17 countries, including the United States. So. Right. Again, I, I said I wanted to come back to the question of why it matters where COVID came from. I mean, it's obviously that if you're Donald Trump, you know, and there's but this was on the paranoid right, you know, was China's, you know, hatched this thing in a laboratory and they unleashed it on the world. And I don't think anybody who's serious believes that. The problem was that for a long time, the lab theory was twinned to the paranoid right-wing conspiracy theory that it was like intentionally leaked in the world, which again, I don't think anybody really believes, but maybe they do. And I just don't know about it. You've been, again, very interested in this question for a long time. So I just, why, why do we care if it came from bats does it matter whether it what the specific sources in within China? Do we care about this because of what the Chinese military might be doing? Do we care about it because of what the the People's Communist Party are doing? Like by knowing how it happened in Wuhan, what does that help us with in terms of geopolitics and in terms of epidemiology? Well, if we do bat to uh, animal to human, so the bat stings the. I'm making this up, the chicken, and somebody eats the chicken from the wet market in Wuhan. You know, there's not much we can do about that, but at least we know that's what happened, right? Or we have enough evidence to believe that that's what happened. If, on the other hand, you know, the Batwoman, there's a famous scientist in Wuhan known as the Batwoman, and she's collected all these viruses from all these bats in bat caves all around China. If she and her colleagues were working on the genetic modification of, you know, one particular strain and that by accident, you know, which accidents happen by, they happen in the U.S. labs, they've happened in Russian labs, I and mean, it's not unusual. If that was the result of an accident in the lab, then the genetic modification of the virus is of paramount importance. So... Those are the two reasons I think that we really need to know, other than the sort of basic scientific curiosity. It's a great whodunit in some ways. I mean, I find the question, you know, super compelling. And I mean, it feels like we need to know. And and do you think we'll know eventually? I do. Do you think we'll have, like, there will be a consensus where it will be established? I yeah. I think we will either rule in or rule out the lab theory. If we rule out the lab theory, if all of the scientists agree that that no longer applies or is not plausible, then that's a decision, right? right? If, on the other hand, we find out that the lab was really run by the PLA and that they were working on you know, genetically modified viruses for whatever reason, there was an accident, that's a completely different story. One of the things that's interesting about Wuhan is that from the very beginning, the Chinese did everything they could mm -hmm. to block access to information. Right. They gave narratives that were completely ludicrous. The new one is the uh, frozen fish. And the great thing about the frozen fish is that it comes from elsewhere. Yeah. You know, it comes from Italy or it comes from wherever it comes from. Uh, so they're blameless in that. But, you know, in the first SARS, the, the outbreak occurred and U.S. scientists and Chinese scientists worked Scientist to scientist talking about scientific matters. Right. It was very straightforward. Everybody was trying to get to the truth. You know, that's not what happened this time. 
I mean, no. every single roadblock that the Chinese government could put up, they put up. And it was, I think, 15 months before the WHO scientific team could actually go to Wuhan. Yeah. So that doesn't suggest bats were flying around. Yes. No, and it's right and proper from a geopolitical and just from a democratically minded standpoint to demand accountability and to say that membership in the community of nations, not to say nothing of leadership, demands transparency. And there are privileges as well as obligations in that. And I think it's right to demand that of China. I mean, 15 months of stonewalling before allowing. I mean, and this yeah. is a country that, you know, is assuming greater leadership in the World Health Organization. Is that why? Right. I mean, is that wise? You know, I think it's right to demand accountability. And I know that, I mean, I, I get it that American moral authority abroad has been eroded over the past four years, but still, this is an opportunity to get things back on track. So, totally agree with that. I want to move on to our second bundle here that you guys take on, which is the financialization of everything. Another another of the of your topic areas, John, that's got a thesis to it kind of embedded in it. And I, I guess this trend has been going on, you know, for quite a long time and it's gotten obviously very extreme. There are a lot of things we could talk about, but the one that most interests me, at least in terms of, I don't think you and I have ever talked about it and I've not heard your take on it, but you know, crypto has been a phenomenon that's been creeping at us through kind of fad to crash, bubble to bust kind of cycles, it feels like for the past decade. And then just really, it seems like in the last six months to a year, suddenly it's like, it feels like crypto's here in a real and meaningful and powerful way. And there's now enough of the kind of ballast behind it and stability around it that things like the NFT craze have taken off that ancillary things, those may turn out to be lasting or not. I just want to get your big take on, you know, are, are we now out of the phase where, where you can be a bull or a bear about the reality of crypto as an important thing in our financial life. And where it's like, you can either like it or not like it. There's a lot of things to talk about here, but it's here in the way that all other major currencies are here, not going anywhere and going to have a huge effect on how finance and economies work forevermore. I think the question is whether cryptos will have the backing of central banks. In China, you know, the central bank there is experimenting uh, with the digital currency and it sort of makes sense, right? From China's point of view, you can see what every single person in the country is doing with their money. That helps a surveillance state. So there's that. There's a central bank controlled, if you will, digital currency that has the same weight or whatever, same value as the paper currency. Um, and then there's this sort of libertarian dream of a floating, independent, unconnected currency, which you know comes in many forms now, Bitcoin being probably the best known. One of the reasons that I, I was really pleased that Rebecca agreed to do the podcast with me is because yes, she has a much deeper understanding of this. I believe that crypto, that there will be a international Bitcoin, yeah. whatever the name turns out to be. But the better person to talk to about this is Rebecca. Well, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> Rebecca Darcy, we're going to talk about your background in a second, but right. financial journalism has been your thing. Give me your version of what John just did about, you know, how to think about, I don't want to say crypto for dummies. I want to say crypto yeah. for smart people. Yeah. I like to think I'm a smart person, <laughs> yeah. but a person who's yeah. not really super versed in this yeah. and, and what's going on with it. As John mentioned, there are a lot of different motivations for people who want to invest in crypto and a lot of different reasons why it's become 
popular. I mean, I think that in institutional circles, Bitcoin and crypto generally has been where all of the financial industry cybersecurity research has gone on. Right. I mean, if somebody wants to rob a bank, I mean, walking into a, a branch with a handgun and saying, you know, give me what you got is a most primitive approach. I mean, everything cybersecurity related is happening in crypto. So that's created tremendous demand for just, you know, sort of the digital sandbox, so to speak, of crypto you know, security experts, financial industry experts, et cetera. You know, and there's interest certainly over the past year plus, aside from the fact that a prolonged period of ultra low interest rates has created massive asset inflation, a lot of cash and liquidity in the system looking for assets in which to invest. Right. As you mentioned, that's benefited a lot of different asset classes, including Bitcoin, which has gained additional attraction as a possible hedge against inflation. So right. at first it was kind of like, well, it was an uncorrelated asset. So yeah. it's an effective portfolio diversifier. Now it's an effective inflation hedge. I think there's also speculation that maybe it will assume some of the characteristics of an international currency. I don't know the extent to which central banks would be buying Bitcoin. I mean, I think that, you know, a lot. I don't see it as a serious threat to the US dollar, for right. example. I mean, I think that a lot of the appeal for the dollar, in addition to being the reserve currency of choice for most central banks around the world, is the depth and liquidity of its treasury and debt markets. And that's not something that Bitcoin can compete with. We talked, John, you mentioned in, in news items some days back, we were talking about whether Bitcoin might pose a greater geopolitical challenge to the euro, maybe, because the euro is younger. It doesn't have a developed treasury, developed bond market the way that the dollar does. And it's, you know, there have been issues of cohesion around the euro that do not exist with the dollar and that maybe Bitcoin seems less strange compared to, you know, it doesn't seem a whole lot weirder than the euro project in certain respects. But it's, you know, so there's, I mean, it's an interesting Bitcoin, it, it's going to be here in some, in some capacity, this idea that it's going to be this, you know, lordless, it's going to erode the exorbitant privilege of the dollar, and it's going to be a currency with no master. I mean, I, I doubt that I think L-O-L, that it, <laughs> no, it's going to be, I mean, it's going to get the regulation is coming. <laughs> it's also as we've started to see like the emergence of Bitcoin whales, yeah. you know, you start to see it. So it's just replicas of the similar kind of cultural financial yeah. kind of you know it's replicating a thing that's very familiar to us in the private equity world in the hedge fund world in the straight stock market world you see the whole thing happening again mm -hmm. i do want to get one last question about this too because rebecca you teased it and and i want to ask john and you guys can both weigh in on this because it seems to me you were talking about crypto as a hedge against inflation so i do want to just put that out there right so you know look joe biden's been a lot of money mm -hmm. a lot of governments all of like in response to the pandemic the amount of money that's getting spent by the public sector in the Western world and the non-Western world of course the last year is not just unprecedented, but would have been inconceivable in any other era. I'm not going to make a normative argument about whether it's good or bad, but I do, you know, it is clear the spending, the public sector spending is vast. The central banks, easy money policies that have been going on in a lot of these central banks for a long time. God, John, you and I like inflation and deficits and debt, you know, used to be key concerns, right? And and the Fed's role in, as an inflation fighter was what it was supposed to do. Zero inflation was, you know, the, what the Fed was supposed to be about. Just like, can this really go on forever? Where like just, you know, the endless piling up of debt, endless, easy, cheap, free money. Are we really, has something happened where our financial world has changed in such a way that all of these things that we thought would be cataclysmic previously are not just not cataclysmic, but have no consequence whatsoever in the world? Yeah, I'll let Rebecca talk about the shift in Fed emphasis from 
inflation to employment, which I think is a very important point. Yes. But we are engaged in the largest modern monetary theory experiment, I would say, in the history of mankind, right? Is that right, Rebecca? Probably. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. you know, there's, there's a woman named, I think, Stephanie Kelton, who was an advisor to Bernie Sanders. She's sort of the face of uh, modern monetary theory. She's a professor at uh, Stony Brook U here in New York. And if you read, there's a great article about her in The New Yorker. And you know, she's either right or she's terribly wrong. People like us, because we've been around long, are, are, you know, panicked always about inflation. And, you know, the thing about inflation is like bankruptcy it kind of creeps up and then it explodes. So that would tear the society apart, I would think. But we, the answer is we don't know. I will say one more thing about crypto, which is there is actually the paper that perfectly captures all of the arguments. It was done by a man named Augustine Karstens, who was uh, general manager at the Bank of International Settlements. And the title of the speech that he gave is Digital Currencies and the Future of the Monetary System. Right. I, I looked and looked and looked for the best article I could find on crypto, and he did it. Well, this is what news items as a newsletter and what the news item podcast is good for is like it's partly about like making you aware of stuff that you didn't know about, partly about making you smarter about stuff that you need to be smarter about, and thirdly about sending you to resources that you would otherwise have not seen. Obscure publications, scientific publications, you know, whatever, where if it would normally come across your radar and John, somehow you're like omnivorously out there sucking down all this information and making some important curatorial choices. But Rebecca, I do want to get you to get in on this question of yeah. debt. Yep. Easy money, inflation, and again, like the big fear was hyperinflation. We had episodes of yep. hyperinflation from Weimar to Brazil, yeah. Bolivia. Nothing tore, could tear a society in part more than that. And so, as John said, we used to be afraid of it all yep. the time, collectively, not just Republicans, not just Democrats, everybody. And now people are like, nothing to fear. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing is that I think we as a society are having to grapple with the fact that the advent of technology has had a massive dampening effect on inflation. Yes. It's a funny thing, this inflation argument, because I think people are right and fair to raise it as a concern. I mean, if you look at Larry Summers, he's been sort of banging the table about, you know, and he's a Democrat, obviously, you know, like banging the table about this Biden plan, all the stimulus, all this monetary easing is massively, massively inflationary. And yet he still thinks there's like roughly even odds that it will turn out badly. I mean, because like, there's just not an example in recent times of an extended period, like there are intermittent spikes in inflation followed by rapid normalization below this kind of arbitrary 2% annual inflation target. I mean, when you consider what happened after the rescue packages, after the great financial crisis and this period of more or less zero interest rates, I mean, it's caused inflation, it's caused massive asset inflation. And it, when you talk about the financialization of everything, that was sort of an octane kickoff to that period of massive um, asset price inflation that has left a lot of people behind. Something is forcing a sea change in traditional macroeconomists like Larry Summers are sort of like they've fallen somewhat out of favor in favor of labor economists. And you have yes. Jerome Powell yeah. shifting his tone away from the inflationary concern to the other part of the Fed's dual mandate, which is maximum employment. And I think he's right to raise that concern. But, I, you know, in terms of the Biden stimulus plan, I mean, it's also 
I'm going to paraphrase Mohammed Al Aryan here, who has really been so smart to bang the table about our over-reliance on global central banks, as he calls them, the, the only game in town. It's not fair to ask Jerome Powell to operate as this kind of quasi-fiscal, you know, yeah. <laughs> Brahmin. I mean, that's not really the Fed's job. The central right. banks have been forced into the position of managing economies in a way that elected politicians really should be doing. And the fact that they've dropped the ball is really on them. Yeah, it's like you've got central bankers to do a job. It was much simpler in the world where it was like, here's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Stop inflation. Yeah. If you could do that, you've done your job. Now they're basically running, you know, as John said, the largest experiment in the history of monetary policy and the history of the world yeah. and have a huge impact on the economic well-being in every way of every country. It's kind of like the job that we ask police to do now in this country, which is where we have them, you know, we have cops who are the front lines of so many different social ills. And it's like, they are not well suited to this job. Like if you send a guy with a gun mm -hmm. into a situation that requires a social intervention, someone's going to end up dead a lot of times and it's not necessarily the right thing. It would be good to like tr give people jobs they're good at and let them do those jobs rather than making them try to solve these much larger problems. Anyway, I want to take a break and then we're going to come back and talk about where this whole thing started. We're here with John Allison and Rebecca Darsh from the News Item Podcast on the Recant. Go and download that thing from the Apple Podcast app or any place else that you get your podcast. This is a thing you can't miss, the News Items Podcast from the Recount. John Allison and Rebecca Darsh will be right back after these messages. And we're back on Hell and High Water with the newest members of the Recount Podcast family, John Ellis and Rebecca Darst, the host of the News Items Podcast. Uh, we have covered two of the big three news items story buckets, big themes. We've talked about uh, world in disarray in the context of COVID. We've talked about financialization of everything. Uh, and I want to share a clip uh, right now of you, John, Rebecca, talking uh, about that second topic that we just covered, the financialization of everything. Here we have the two of you analyzing the electronic trading firm Citadel Securities as part of a larger discussion about the new SEC chair, Gary Gensler, uh, and the chances that he will try to rein in some of Wall Street's more obvious excesses. They themselves, Citadel, the company itself, says that it executes 47% of all retail U.S. stock trading volume. Overall, that's a lot. That's 47%. 40, 47%. Wow. The information that is contained in order flow for a market participant that is that dominant is significant. They have valuable information on how U.S. investors are trading. Especially when they have a hedge fund. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we won't go there. <laughs> we won't go there. We're not going anywhere near that. No. <laughs> and that concentration of power is essentially at the verge, at least, of a monopoly, mm -hmm. and therefore more expensive. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and right. probably not open to innovation, right? Yes. So, you know, that's, again, financialization of everything, the second of the big three, and really four big story buckets that you guys do. We're going to get to the second two of those big story buckets. We're going to talk about science and technology advances. That's the third bucket. And then electoral politics, that's the fourth. We're going to talk about that in the third part of the podcast. But before we do that, I want to take a little time to talk about the two of you and your backgrounds and, and how you came to be doing this. And John, uh, I will start with you, age before beauty here, I guess, and also because you are uh, well, you're the guy who brought news items into the world. It's your baby. And, you know, I I discovered it 
uh, relatively early in its life, but not at the very start. So I'd love for our audience, uh, I'd love to hear you talk about uh, what made you decide to create the newsletter and and what you had in mind when uh, you decided to do it. Well, initially, it was a way to see if I could think. I had had uh, spinal fusion back surgery in March. Of what year? 2016. So you had the surgery. I had the surgery, and six weeks later, I had about three days of level three brain seizures. I woke up at Lenox Hill Hospital, not quite sure where, what I was doing there, and I was eventually discharged. So I thought the way to sort of test whether I had a working brain was to put together a newsletter in the morning that would capture good stories about what was going on. I was working for Fox Business Network at the time, and the other way I sort of tested my brain was to see if I could do the crossword puzzle as well as I had done before. Just out of curiosity, when you started those tests, what did you determine? Did you have a working brain? Do we know? Is the verdict in on that? Uh, no, not quite yet. Okay. We have you know some more inquiries. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, the, the thing about working at the Fox Business Network is it's like all networks. It, there are all these young kids who were wildly underpaid, and they didn't really know much about the world. So I thought the newsletter would be a useful thing for them to look at, at stories that they might not otherwise think of, and they cover the campaign, so it would help them with that. And... Uh, I guess it was in September, I got a new reader, Rupert Murdoch, and uh, he went around the building saying how much he liked reading it. And of course, then I had a lot more readers. We're still in 2016 right now? 2016, yeah. And so then the election was over. So I thought, okay, well, the election's over. I feel pretty good. And Rupert suggested that I keep doing it. So I kept doing it. And I gradually focused it on the four baskets, uh, but the three main baskets are the world in disarray, financialization of everything, and these extraordinary advances in science and technology. It got to be popular to the point that it became a newsletter for the Wall Street Journal CEO Council, and then I separated from, that's what they call it, they say you're separated from the Fox slash Wall Street Journal. And the next day I started it as a standalone product. Substack came along and provided a platform that enabled me to charge for subscriptions. Right. And that's where we're at. The standalone product, what's the timing on that? What what year or month? I was separated from Fox slash WSJ on February 1st, I think 2019. Okay. And I talked to Hamish McKenzie at Substack in March or whatever, and we, we launched on the Substack platform in April or May. So a couple years now, basically running as a not no longer Sama's Dot, you know, a kind of thing where people can get at it. Rebecca, I, I ask you, you know, before we roped you into this podcast venture <laughs> and gave you the delightful Mr. Ellis as a partner, were you a mm-hmm. news items junkie, devotee, regular reader, or were you like, what the fuck is news items? No, I've just, I've been a regular reader for quite some time. I've known John for a lot of years. So tell me about that. What's the relationship? Okay. I want to hear a little bit about your background and how you, I feel like I'm reasonably polymathic, like I know a fair amount about a fair number of things, but I would not want to try to host a podcast with John Ellis. And this is a very wide ranging series of topics. So I just yeah. would love to hear a little bit about where you come from that you feel this 
well-versed with this many big topics that you like aren't afraid to do this because I can tell you I would be terrified. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Well, I, I'll spare you the story of my life, but I'm originally from Kansas. I lived in Denmark for several years as a young adult where I worked for uh, a news agency that had one paying client for our news, <laughs> which was the European Commission in Brussels. So I was, you know, for several years, I followed Scandinavian politics, as well as the region's somewhat ambivalent relationship with the European Union, sort of European business topics, moved back to the U.S. and began working first as an equity options analyst for a firm called Interactive Brokers in Greenwich and started appearing on CNBC, where I did the options report every Thursday, which happened to be an interesting time to be involved in the market because the great financial crisis was sort of brewing and some of the first signals yeah. came from the options market. So totally. it was sort of a, an opportune slash inopportune place to be. Uh, after that, I went to work for the New York Stock Exchange for several years. Actually, about six weeks after the collapse of Lehman Brothers, the New York Stock Exchange opened a desk on the floor that was its tactical market intelligence desk, market access center. So I was one of three people on that desk. And our job was basically to monitor the market throughout the trading day and get on the phone and call companies when something weird was going on in their stock or their options. So it was a it was this kind of secret tactical force on the nice. floor of the NYSC. And I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. I mean, I had just to to be on the floor every day and you just I mean, as long as interest rates were close to zero, you basically know what's gonna happen and yet you right. don't know what's gonna happen. <laughs> <laughs> on any given day, you know, anything could happen. I mean, we would call people after the, you know, when the euro was about to collapse and you know, that you just never know what's gonna shake markets on any given day. It was fantastic to yeah. follow that many companies. And I have a I mean, I have a lot of fondness for the floor community. So then after that I left after they were acquired by the Intercontinental Exchange. And since that time I've been operating a news site called Investable Universe, which covers thematic investment topics in real assets, the global market of things. Wow. You're well suited to this podcast, especially yep. that financialization of everything, which is obviously uh, yep. right in yep. your wheelhouse. John, I, I do want you to say a little bit. You told the story of news items. I will, for the sake of our vast and influential audience, in hopes that we could get all of them to start listening to the news item podcast, I think they need to understand a little bit more about who you are. I believe it's fair to say, I could say, a member in good standing of the Bush clan, but a little bit removed. So I just, I'd love to hear a little bit about your eclectic, interesting history, which kind of is reflected, I think, in a lot of ways in the newsletter. It's not that many people I know in journalism, and especially in my generation and younger, where specialization is, is the order of the day, right? Very few political journalists know anything about science. Very few business journalists know anything about politics. Very few finance journalists know anything about uh, about anything except for finance. So Rebecca is obviously an exception to that. But like you have kind of wandered around and done a lot of interesting things over the course of your career that put you in a position where you're credibly sourced and au fait enough to like know what's important in four topic areas as diverse as these. How did you get there? Tell people about the background that brought you to that place. Well, I started my career at the NBC News Election Unit, and I worked there for 10 years. My mother was George Herbert Walker Bush's younger sister. So he was elected in 1988, and I left NBC News because in those days, you know, it was a conflict of interest. It's no longer a conflict of interest, but, but I thought it was a conflict of interest, and I left. And I went to work uh, with Roger Ailes on two big projects. One was to figure out how to do better research for Hollywood. Barry Diller had hired him to do that. And then there was hmm. a project for American Express that Roger asked me to contribute to. 
And I stayed working on and off as a consultant to Roger. I came in and did the, uh, quote, strategic plan, end quote. I mean, Roger didn't need a lot of help with primetime talk shows, but we did a strategic plan for CNBC, and then he got fired at CNBC, and Jim Pinkerton and I were asked, I was asked to do the news side of Fox News, and Jim was asked to do the opinion side. Again, I'm not sure Roger needed much help on the opinion side, but... But anyway, so I had a long relationship with Roger as a consultant. And when I was living in Boston in 1992, I started to write for the Boston Globe and eventually ended up as a columnist for the Boston Globe and was going to do that. And then my cousin ran for president and won. And so, you know, again, conflict of interest. So I stepped down. I did venture capital in the 2000s. We had worked on a company called Synthetic Genomics. My friend Juan Enriquez was one of the founders of it. We had not very much success, but Synthetic Genomics, I think, is still one of the most important companies in the world. And that ended with the great financial crisis. Roger came back to me and said, I'd like you to help with Fox Business Network. I don't know what to do with it. I've never really wanted to do it. Rupert's idea, maybe you could help. So I came in and I gave the same idea, which every single person did, which is you combine it with Wall Street Journal, you rebrand it as the Wall Street Journal Network. Needless to say, that went nowhere <laughs> and uh, it became Trump TV. Yes. And I, I, I can't help but ask the question, you know, because of your history there. I mean, what do you make of it? Now, I mean that in the largest sense. I mean, I, I met Rupert Murdoch when I first started in journalism. I was working for The Economist magazine and covering the media business. First real beat I ever had in journalism. I was living in London and I had the privilege at the time of like meeting with, I mean, I helped kill Robert Maxwell for one thing, but I also then, you know, got to spend time with Murdoch back in those days when he was not, you know, seen, he was seen as iconoclastic and was hated by a lot of the British establishment, but was not seen as a right wing purveyor of right wing disinformation and scum. He was seen as more of a media innovator for having started the Fox network, et cetera, et cetera. Brilliant man, vastly influential. Roger, obviously an incredible, before we got to the nasty part of Roger's life, a guy who had had an incredibly important role in in the transformation of modern presidential campaigns starting in in 68, you know, in television. I mean, the man's as influential as almost anybody in the history of modern politics and television and, and media. So, you know, you know those guys. And now this network that they put on is what it is. I don't know how comfortable you are talking about it, but I'm curious, like, what you think of that this is where that thing has ended up, that those guys with their brilliance and with their their iconoclasm and obviously their greed and capitalism, you know, ended up with this thing that I, I you know, it's not Fox News has, has been on a certain trajectory for a while. But what do you make of that trajectory and what the network is now and how it exists in our world? And you're a guy who cares about facts, as far as I can tell. And there's not a lot of them on Fox News currently. Yeah, no, I was very happy when I moved from Fox Business Network, where virtually every idea I proposed was rejected and, and found myself in the Wall Street Journal offices. That felt a lot more comfortable for me. You know, I they saw a market opportunity, conservative voice underrepresented, probably 50% of the television audience. They went after it. They had some fun doing it. And this is my take. I'm, I'm not, you know, it's sort of maybe, maybe not true. But what happened was they got rich. They all got really, really rich. And they really liked being rich. Roger really liked having a plane and all that stuff. And so what came over the institution was we just have to do better in the ratings and we have to make more money. You know, once the ratings took over, then you're at the mercy of the audience. 
And as polarization and the sort of craziness of American politics took deeper and deeper hold, I guess, the network got crazier. I say all the time, you know, the two key facts about Fox are 30% of the audience thinks it's too liberal or too moderate. And the other key fact is the programming is not from the network to the audience. The audience programs the network, not the other way around. So if people think that masks are bad, everybody in the building at 1211 6th Avenue is wearing masks, right? They're required to do so. Yeah. But if the audience thinks masks are bad, then, you know, that's what they'll say, masks are bad. I just don't think people understand how completely overtaken the network has become by the fringe of the audience. Yes. And you could see it after Trump lost and, you know, Fox was like, oh, my God, he lost. We called Arizona, et cetera, et cetera. And Trump was really pissed and tried to take the audience, you know, elsewhere and was successful, at least for a brief period of time. And Fox just completely panicked. Yeah. And Roger said to me over and over again, if anybody ever comes at this network from the right, you know, the place won't know what to do unless I'm here. And that's what happened after the 2000 election. We got a major attack from the right and they had no idea what to do. I, th there are very few topics I find more fascinating than this one. And uh, John, I could talk to you about this all day long, literally. Um, and we could do a whole separate podcast on this question alone. But uh, we do have to take a quick break because this is a commercial enterprise and we have to have some ads and we have to like, we literally, you know, we have to pay for the show. So if we're going to pay for the show, we need to take the break, we'll take the break. And then we come back at the end of the break and we talk about the other two big thematic buckets on the News Items podcast with its co-hosts, John Ellis and Rebecca Darst, here on Hell and High Water. And we are back on Hell and High Water with John Ellis and Rebecca Darst, the hosts of the News Items podcast. I want to share another clip from the show where John and Rebecca discuss this recent, totally out of control dust-up between Liz Cheney and, uh, well, <laughs> I was going to say, you know, Liz Cheney and, and Kevin McCarthy, Liz Cheney and Matt Gates. No, really Liz Cheney and pretty much the entirety of the rest of the house Republican caucus. So let's take a listen to that. There's a pretty strong group of Republicans, conservative Republicans who are really dismayed by what president Trump has done. And more important, dismayed by Republican leadership going along with it. Uh -huh. Everybody said, well, she's going to lose her job, and mm -hmm. this is the end of Liz Cheney. But she walks away with 4 or 5% of the Republican vote. That's the end of that. Democrats okay. will win. Do you mean she's in a strong position to run for president herself? When I first watched all of this unfold, I thought, wow, she's running for president on the theory that you could do a third party and that, that would generate a lot of excitement and a lot of enthusiasm. And if the Trump myth were to yeah. become undone, and for instance, he went to jail, people would consider her to be someone to take seriously as a presidential candidate. Uh -huh. So it's not like she's going to run for president, but she's elevating herself nationally. Yeah. And there are a lot of conservative Republicans who share her view. So... She's in a position to be very influential with that set of conservative Republicans. Where she might lead them, one doesn't know. So it's a threat. 
right? Yeah. It's a threat, and it's one that they, seems to me, are mishandling remarkably. Yeah. For some reason, they've gone like, she's a heretic, and we got to burn her at the stake. And yeah. it's just, it's politically, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So. You said it. Politically, yeah. it's crazy. <laughs> yes, but but we live in crazy times. And that is John Ellis and Rebecca Darst. You know, um, before the break, we were talking about the role of Fox News, which takes us into the realm of, I guess, domestic politics. You guys cover when you talk about politics, you do domestic American politics. You also do a lot of international politics. So we should touch a little bit on, uh, just get a little bit of a taste of the guy, way you guys do politics and how you think about it. And then we'll finish on the other one of the core buckets, which is uh, maybe the most fascinating to me, which is advances in science and technology. But on politics, I have two questions for you. Um, the, the first, Joe Biden, now past the 100-day mark, uh, what's next? And two, kind of jumping off from what uh, Ellis and I were just talking about before the break, which seems to me as important right now as Biden's ambition and his transformational aspirations, is the fact that there is no real effective critique rooted in genuine ideology or political principle or policy uh, differences on the right side of the political spectrum. The conservative party has abandoned pretty much all of those the Republican party has. And, and it, you know, no one really thinks Republicans are conservative anymore. They are the radical party. They are the, the big lie party. They are uh, the party of cultural grievance. And it seems to me that the abdication of traditional conservatism, ideology, policy, principle, uh, has really shaped our politics right now as much as Joe Biden winning the presidency and Democrats controlling the House of Representatives and, and being having really effective control over the Senate. So I'd love to hear you both talk about these stories uh, and what the stories are in this area that we should be paying attention to. I know, I know, like I just, I just dropped a giant, huge topic on your plate, but uh, have at it. Like this is, I mean, this is, well, it's a huge topic and it's really, I mean, John is really the master at putting the electoral map over these issues, which I think is probably what John would tell you to do on the, on the podcast, that the distribution of voters so neatly conforms to the contours of the electoral college, that this vote getting that takes place on the crazy fringes of really both parties, but I think we all know which party has been more damaging, shall we say, to the Democratic project. I mean, I would be taking a look at this uh, at venture capital between the coast. This is like a sort of a financialization of everything as well yes. as a political story, because as we talked about on News Items podcast, we talked earlier about J.D. Vance, but then we also talked about the Republican Party sort of trying to do this switcheroo of becoming the party that opposes the wage gap and is suddenly standing up for the working person. And I'm both interested and horrified and scared by that development. So I really want to see how that goes, because when you think about the prospect of even areas that are, are right within Joe Biden's wheelhouse, like getting jobs for people where they live, strategic slash holistic reshoring of economic activities, those should be Democratic core issues. You know, it's like, don't get too friendly with Coca-Cola over Georgia. Like, look at the rest of America and take these issues on. You know, don't let Republicans run off with your lunch like that, because I think that's possibly what they're fixing to do. <laughs> and I mean, I say this as I, I maybe I betray my political just a, team just a little by bit. saying that, a but I bit. 
Just a little, but look, I mean, I think it's a real hazard. But the thing is, look, if Democrats do allow the Republican Party to become the everyman party and the, you know, venture capital between the coasts party, et cetera, I mean, they'll have no one to blame but themselves, really. I mean, because they, the lights are flashing on this, you know, pay attention to, you know, regular working Americans. As I mentioned, I come from Kansas. I grew up in a very conservative environment. When there were culture wars going on in the 1990s, I became sort of seduced, both for better and for worse, by financial markets because there were no culture wars there, (laughs) because it wasn't a culture wars area. I find it so corrosive to the soul. And I want to say just on the general topic of domestic politics in the U.S., that culture wars, I think, are similar in certain respects to civil wars and cold wars and hot wars even, in that it takes the productive capacity of a country and its intellect and its potential and it wastes it. It's like GDP in reverse, you know? And I don't want to see that. I I think that certainly the events of... January 6th brought that, you know, into startling focus for many people in the United States, but it's been going on for a long time. And I think we got to take a look at it and, you know, we got to shape it up. So, John, what do you think about that? Rebecca is really funny. She kind of goes, I defer to John about this or that. And then she offers some brilliant insight where she integrates something about that I hadn't really ever thought of in the the, the way in which the, she pulls in these economic and financial constructs into the, the middle of the political discussion. But it is obviously the case that you often, even though you say domestic politics in the newsletter and in the news items universe is kind of a subsection. It's like a redheaded stepchild of the other three. The truth is your knowledge about it is pretty vast. And, and you and I always have had some interesting interactions over time about politics and its intersection in particular with a lot of these stories in the other buckets that you care about. So it does seem like a moment here, right? It's pedestrian now to remark on Joe Biden's, the scale of his ambitions the way he went from saying he was going to be a transitional president to now clearly wrapping his arms around the idea that he's, at least in his mind, he's going to be transformational. And there's no doubt that the speech he gave to Congress a while back was the most liberal speech a American president has given in the well of the Congress since LBJ. There's no doubt about it, right? And these were not things we expected of Joe Biden. But I do think that one of what's important about all of this right now is that over time, not just because of Donald Trump, but I would say over successive generations Republicans debasing themselves on the question of the size and of the role of government, about debt, about deficits, about about being having an intellect, a genuinely conservative ideological core from which policy would spring. Not having that is part of what has made Biden's transformational aspirations possible. A, a genuine Republican Party from 30 years ago that still had credibility on some of these issues would be a very different kettle of fish for Joe Biden than what he currently faces, which is a party that stands for nothing, believes nothing, has no standing on these questions of the size of government, has no question standing on taxes, has no standing on deficits, on spending. So all they are is, you know, the cultural grievance pissed off white guy party. And that just makes a lot of space for political and policy adventurism, which is what we're seeing on Biden's part. So I ask you, that's my thesis about some of this. I'd love to hear yours. I'm of the view that the Republicans will probably recapture the Senate and the House in the 2022 election. So I think politically speaking, they'll be have one of the three branches and they've got a pretty good lead, I, I would say, in the Supreme Court. So I think they're going to be not as powerful, obviously, when they had all three, the House of uh, Congress and the presidency. But I don't think they're going away. I don't think they have much to say. But I think the Democrats keep making them viable by doing stupid things. And, you know, the whole wokeization 
of the Democratic Party is a gift to the Republicans. I was talking to Walter Mead earlier, and we were talking about in the 50s, you know, you needed uh, the working class because they did the work. If the coal miners went on strike, then you couldn't turn the lights on. If the Teamsters went on strike, you couldn't get your stuff delivered. Right. And you needed a conscripted army to fight your wars. In this new age, the elites don't need the working class. They can outsource production to any number of countries. Shipping containers make it very cheap to move our goods back and forth. So you've had this real disconnect, and the Republicans have been reasonably good at exploiting that. And if the Democrats were to address the center of the country as aggressively as I think they should, then I think they would put the Republicans away. But they don't seem to be heading in that direction. They seem to be heading in the other direction. The, the ways in which the Democratic Party enables the Republican Party through through taking outre positions that are put way outside the mainstream culturally in America are, is clearly a huge issue politically for Democrats. Totally agree with that. Joe Biden is not, though, or I ask you the question. Joe Biden is pursuing vastly ambitious plans, but what strike me as traditional liberal plans, not particularly like woke 21st century hipster plans, he seems to me like the strength of Biden, not of the party in toto, which you make a good point about, but the strength of Biden seems to be that he's couching a very, 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 very big, bold, progressive liberal agenda in like very old fashioned kind of terms that avoid most of the kind of cultural issues that you're talking about. And certainly that's part of the reason he was probably the only Democrat who could have eaten Trump. A woke Democrat would have gotten his ass kicked in 2020. I mean, Joe Biden was, I think you and I had breakfast or something just before the South Carolina primary. And, you know, Joe Biden was elected because the Democratic primary electorate and caucus attending electorate said, he's the guy that can beat Trump. And we know the others are too liberal, so he's our guy. And the weird thing about Joe Biden's election was that the election was a referendum on Trump. And Biden's job was to defeat Trump. That was what we wanted him to do. And he went out, won the national popular vote by a wide margin, close, obviously, in the Electoral College. But he did his job. And so it turns to January 20th and, you know, he's fulfilled his mandate, right, which was to beat Trump. And then suddenly they're off on this grand adventure, the next New Deal or whatever you want to call it. And the question is, is there enough political support for that to sustain Biden through the next you know, year and a half to the midterm elections? or not. And I think the people around Biden said, look, we'll probably lose the midterms. So let's just get as much done as we possibly can. Yes. And maybe with the momentum of stimulus checks and, you know, post COVID, we'll have a good enough economy that we can hold on to the House and Senate. And, right. you know, we'll see. I don't I don't know the answer to that. Well, I think that's accurate as what their assessment is. And I think, you know, look, they have a very narrow majority in the House. In general, any incumbent president's going to lose seats in the House in, in his first midterm election. So they're losing control of the House is kind of baked in the cake, you know, whether that's in a very closely fought election or, or, or not. And so they are very aware of that. And they were like, we are going to get all the big shit done in these two years and then try to do what Barack Obama did after he got shellacked in the midterm elections in, in 2010 and what Bill Clinton did after he got shellacked in the midterm elections in 1994, which is pick up the pieces and hope to get reelected on longer trends. And I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, some of the things we were talking about a second ago, which is whether there's political support for spending $6 trillion on mm -hmm. COVID relief, 
which was obviously very popular on job stuff, on climate, on infrastructure, on family stuff. One big part of whether or not there will be political support for that in the long term is does that come back to haunt the economy? If the economy's roaring after spending $6 trillion, mm -hmm. there'll be plenty of political support for it. People will be okay and Joe Biden will get reelected four years from now. If we have hyperinflation and the stock market crashes, you know, totally different kettle of fish. Um, so <laughs> I think that kind of leads to, gets us back to that same question we were just addressing, which is, you know, the economic yeah. and financial risks more, more than like the politics, I think, are totally determined by what happens. But coming out of COVID, there's at least a chance mm -hmm that you could be having a massive economic boom over the course of 2022-2023 and into re-election for Biden. At least that's possible if all this spending doesn't come back to haunt him and what you used to think of as reality doesn't reassert itself in those worlds. I will say yep. this about the electorate in general. If you look at the electorate's opinions on social safety net, social security, expansion of Medicare, a whole range of issues that are you know, related to people's retirement well-being and, and healthcare and so on and so forth. The general public is aligned with the liberal point of view. You know, the public is much more liberal than people seem to realize. Where where the Republicans make gains and where the Democrats shoot themselves in the foot are on the cultural issues. Yes. Yes, I think that's right. I don't want to run out of time before we get a chance to talk to you about our fourth bucket, which I always find John as to being the most interesting in a lot of ways of all the buckets on the News Items podcast and in the News Items newsletter, which is the SciTech space. And, and Rebecca, I guess I just want to start with you and say, you know, there's a lot going on. There's always a lot going on in these spaces. Amazing things are happening constantly in biotech, in genomics, mm -hmm. in neuroscience. You know, what has in recent days, you've been doing the podcast and really like tuned in mm -hmm. on this. Tell me about some things in this silo that have jumped yeah. out at you and said, boy, I better keep an eye on that. Like in the way that John did about COVID where yeah. you're like, hey, this is like, this is going someplace interesting. I think what's really interesting is what's happening in quantum computing. I know there was a big breakthrough that was announced by a firm called QCWare together with Goldman Sachs. They've developed a quantum algorithm that bests the traditional Monte Carlo simulation that's used for price and risk modeling in financial markets. Those models are usually conducted because they're very computationally intensive and time intensive. They're usually conducted once a day by financial market players, uh, which means that in conditions of market stress, where you have you know, a volatile market where a lot of different things are melting down on different markets, they can be too slow. But there's been this major breakthrough in quantum computing by this firm QCWare together with Goldman Sachs. And the same firm just roughly uh, you know, a few days ago, uh, announced that it's also got a contract with the United States Air Force Research Laboratory to use its same quantum-based algorithmic approach. As qu they, they, By the way, this firm specializes in quantum as a service. So that's going to be a SciTech area that's going to be everywhere within the next five to 10 years, like quantum as a service. And they use their quantum algorithms to track the flight path of unmanned aerial devices to try to determine the intentions of the device. So that to me is like, yeah. that's huge. I mean, this is like the applications are so weird and varied and ubiquitous that I think that's going to be an interesting area to watch. What matters more, John, quantum computing or AI? In 1999, you had the first map of the human genome. What enabled that was a vast bank of servers in Maryland, second only to the NSA's vast bank of servers, right. processing vast amounts of genomic data in what was called a shotgun sequence, you basically blew apart the genome and reconstructed it via computing power. What we have now 
is we have massive computing power. We have quantum computing coming, uh, which is those things that would take three months or eight months in three minutes or eight minutes. And then we have AI, which sifts through all the data, looks for the patterns, you know, identifies the patterns, and depending on how it's programmed, can tell you that apples are not good if you have lung cancer, something like that, right? So you have high-speed internet, you have vast serving capacity, you have high-speed quantum computing itself, and you have AI. You put all that together, and what you're doing essentially is accelerating discovery at a pace and a and a breadth that mankind has never seen before. So it's it's astonishing. And, you know, my friend Juan Enrique said that what's going on is that Darwin is being reversed. It's no longer natural selection, it's unnatural selection because we can genetically modify plants and people and animals. And it's not random mutation, it's non-random mutation because we make the decisions about what genetic slices we want to make. You know, upending Darwin <laughs> is where we're at, and it's astonishing. It's what makes my mornings really worthwhile. Is I do the science between three and four in the morning. I go through all the science books. And yeah. Every day, there's just something else that blows your mind. Upending Darwin—that's like a pretty big deal, right? That's not a that's small. A, that's a small thing. Yeah. Not a small story. Yes. In the course of my life, I've had a lot of run-ins with people close to me who've had experience with cancer. I've been, you know, in cancer world for a lot of my, for basically my entire adult life with people who, again, close to me. I think about the advances that are happening uh, on that stage. I think about, obviously, the genomic stuff. Yes. As you said, it's a world of miracle and wonders. I believe that's, you know, these are the days of miracle and wonders. Paul Simon from The Boy in the Bubble. It's like it really is true amidst all of the shitty stuff. And even COVID, right, John? It's like, I, I think when the history of this is told, the story of the defeat of COVID, the eventual defeat of COVID, it's going to be a good news story. It's not going to be about the, the tragedies of the pandemic. The way that history will look at it was one of the most extraordinary feats of science and technology in the history of the world. Am I wrong about that? I don't think I am. I mean, I think Dr. Sahin from BioNTech, who you know developed the vaccine for COVID, what's known now as the Pfizer vaccine, Yeah, his work for the last 30 years has been on cancer. And he believes that he will make enormous strides in that regard. So when we read his obit, whenever we read that obit, we may read about the man who defeated the coronavirus and the man who defeated cancer. And it would be the most astonishing scientific career in the history of mankind. Fucking mind-blowing. My last question here, guys, I'll ask you both. I know you both read this story. There's all these great things happening in science, technology, and health amazing things across all these fronts. John's just talked about them, Rebecca, you know, quantum computing. Oh my God. Like, you know, it makes me long for the days when I was, you know, when we were starting up Wired Magazine and all of this stuff felt so fresh and new. And now it's like just 20 times. We all said, this is going to come someday. And then it took a little while. And now it's all here. And we're like, whoa, shit, man, it's great. And then I read this thing in the news items newsletter that says that there's some scientific data that suggests that if you sleep less than six hours a night, you run a greater risk of dementia. And when I saw that story, I thought to myself, I'm fucked. 
I mean, I'm fucked. I'm going to be, I'm going to be babbling and drooling on my shirt, like by lunchtime. Like, I mean, John, tell me that if I'm going to get dementia or Rebecca, either one of you, tell me if I'm going to get dementia because I don't sleep enough, that there's going to be that same guy who cures cancer and defeated COVID going to come up with an anti-dementia pill. Can I, someone please get us the thing. There's got to be a drug coming soon that I can just take and then like prophylactically prevent the dementia that I'm certainly going to get if I don't get that drug. You know, we have the race between the vaccine and the variants. You have in your in your at my case as well. You have uh, <laughs> you have the race between the sleep pattern and the Allen Brain Institute in Seattle. And you know, I would bet on the Allen Brain Institute. You're young enough that uh, I might not work for me, but I think you'll you'll get in under the wire. And Rebecca will be like, "Wait, well, she had nothing oh, to worry yeah. about. She's Rebecca's like, they'll have got, like, so, <laughs> she, no. she's Rebecca doesn't even get in on this conversation. <laughs> well, I sleep more than six hours. Do you really? <laughs> so I, I do. I do. Good like, I you. just can't. I mean, I'm not at risk. For dementia. Not from that. Anyway. She's the healthy one on this podcast right now. Yeah. Yeah. Rebecca, well, nice. I don't know. Um, it's been a delight. There are few things I can endorse more wholeheartedly than the News Items podcast with John Ellison, Rebecca Darst. And if you listen to this podcast, you would be like, oh yeah, I want to hear those guys talk more about this stuff because it's all pretty interesting, this stuff, right? So thank you guys for doing the podcast. John, thank you for inventing the newsletter and thank you for coming on and being with me today on Hell and High Water, you guys. Thank you so much, Joe. Thanks a lot. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thanks again to Rebecca Darst and John Ellis, the co-hosts of the News Items podcast from The Recount family of podcasts. Thank you guys for being with us. If you liked this here episode, please, my God, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel and Diana Roten handled the research. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer and Christian Fidel Castro-Russell is our executive producer. 